We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 6 today, and we will go through several stories and look at um, the life of Jesus uh, in this chapter. <clears throat> so in the first part of uh, chapter 6, I think what we're going to do differently is I'm not going to read the, the text because it takes so long to read the text, and then our analysis of it, it takes a while as well. So I'm just going to allude to the text, and hopefully you can uh, pick this up. But we're looking at Mark chapter 6 verses 1 through 6, and in this particular part, Jesus is uh, described as uh, teaching in the, in the synagogue, in the local synagogue on Sabbath, and they were amazed that he had all this wisdom and he had all, this, um, all these miracles. But then they remember, because he's, he's preaching in his own hometown, they remember that this is the son of Mary, and he, they remember his brothers and sisters, that uh, his stepbrothers and sisters that are living there, and <clears throat> and maybe his other brothers and sisters as well. And then he just, they just recall that he grew up there, and they're like, what's so special about him? And then suddenly they just reject him, right? And now this particular gospel, Mark's, Mark's story does not go into detail about that rejection, but other gospels do have a, a more fuller detail about it. But here Jesus says, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And then it's, the Bible goes on to say that, uh, And because of their unbelief, he could not do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. So what a sad story about <clears throat> Jesus returning back to his hometown with all the people that had seen his miracles from everywhere else, but he was not able to do anything in his own hometown because of their unbelief. Now, Jesus says that a prophet is, is honored everywhere except his own hometown. Is there any uh, biblical precedent to this, or is this just an observation by Jesus? No, I think there is. I think, I mean, Jesus might actually be referencing other stuff than what I'm thinking about, but I thought of that same idea when it came to Abraham, for example. Like, um, I think there's something to the to the way our psychology works that when we're in some area, people put us in a box and we relate to ourselves based on the box that other people have put us in. And there's this sort of dynamic. So like even Abraham, he had to leave his hometown and leave his family and move away from there to be the man that God called him to be because chances are if he has stayed there, he might not have stayed faithful or he might not have been able to accomplish his, his life mission. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure there's probably other instances even throughout scripture where um, Jesus is referring to prophets that are not being honored by their hometown. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, I've, I've often talked to people over the years who were just telling me the struggles they were having at home. And sometimes I suggested that maybe they need to, to find some place to be, go somewhere, go on a mission, establish yourself somewhere where you can drive in your, your religious roots deep enough to where the, the people around your home are not going to affect you as much if you ever come back. Yeah, it's sometimes difficult to overcome the, the biases or the limiting beliefs that surround you in the area where you have been for a while. Yeah. And uh, so there's a, a concept of, of that, like, like you say, moving to another place and, and starting over. <clears throat> sometimes just moving to another place and starting over just gives you this fresh, clean slate that gives you the opportunity to just uh, start something new and, and begin.
begin begin mm-hmm. anew. Now, I wanted to to bring up two concepts here that are not really related to the the text per se, but are just from my own reading. <clears throat> the first one has to do with the idea of pastors moving from place to place. Mm. So I think the the flip side of um, being in one place for too long is that sometimes you can develop a regional authority to the point where you are the power center and everything revolves around you and it's unhealthy for the congregation. And sometimes it could be unhealthy for the spiritual growth of you know, even if you're a member, just being in one area as well. Uh, <clears throat> obviously, we can't all, you know, move around the country whenever we want to, but there, there is some, some value to the, the moving part. I just wanted to mention that. The second thing I wanted to mention, I don't know if you want to comment uh, on that. Say your second thing first, maybe we'll come back to it. Okay. It's totally different, so maybe you might just... <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, like, th- there's, there's that other side to it as well, where sometimes pastors get moved around just as they're beginning to establish some roots and, and to get the sense of the rhythm of the work in that area, especially in a place like United States where uh, it's culturally so different, you know, going across from one side of the nation to another. So you immerse yourself in an area and you get to know how people think and how to, how to work with them, how to reach them, and then boom, you got to get up and go somewhere else and start over. And you're, you're wasting that window because every new area you're entering into has a certain window of, of getting used to the situation before you can be 100% effective, you know, before you can be at your best. So anyway, there's, there's a flip side to that, but uh, it works both ways. Okay, so the next thing that I wanted to discuss um, was <clears throat> I had read this post by somebody where they said that, uh, where they were talking about uh, pastors and they were saying, you know, were they really your friends? And it's, it was talking about a pastor and how they were in some religious context and then for whatever reason, they were either removed from the context, I don't remember the exact story, but they were either removed from the context of leadership or they were just, um, just trying to be friends with people around them. And they realized that a lot of people were friends with them because they were the pastor. Or they were the, the the leader of the congregation, and so for that reason, sometimes people form friendships with you because of your uh, your power, like your spiritual power or your attention. And once that goes away, then they're they're no longer attached to that, right? And they were talking about the, the subtle power dynamics between friends. That even though you feel like as a pastor, as a youth leader, or as a ministry leader you feel like you're on the same level as the members when really the members don't see it that way because you do have this power. So it's kind of a, a, an interesting dynamic yeah. as well. Yeah, and also you got to look at it from the member's perspective because you know, they, they might be in an area for, for decades while during that time they've been to like 20 different pastors mm-hmm. and they just get used to this idea that, mm-hmm. hey, this person's here temporarily, we're going to be friends with them and... and uh, you know, accept them while they're here, but at some point somebody else is going to come in, we're going to have to make friends with them instead. And uh, it's a lot harder to maintain like a long-distance friendship once a person leaves. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting dynamic there as well. Yeah. So, anyway, <clears throat> just going on with, uh, with, our, with our study here. The text itself says that Jesus was not accepted in his own hometown. And they refused to believe in him and as a result he was able to do very few miracles compared to Capernaum or anywhere else and it really was a changing of of um, an era I guess 
because Jesus may have thought that that Nazareth was his home, but it ended up being that Capernaum was was where he ended up basing his operations out of, and it was simply because that he was more accepted there than just a few miles down the road. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so you know, I'm wondering if, as Jesus was growing up, you know, building relationships with the people in his hometown, I wonder if he was thinking, oh, one day. I'm going to start my ministry and I'm going to be able to help all these people that are struggling with sickness, disease, chronic pain, whatever. And he comes back and it turns out that they're not interested in his help because they just can't take him seriously given that he grew up over there, you know. And he he comes in and then he has to live realizing that he couldn't actually help the people that he grew up with. Yeah, that must have been crushing. Must have been crushing. So, <clears throat> moving on. The... the the, the text moves on to another subsection where it says that Jesus went village to village teaching the people and he sent out his disciples two by two, giving them the authority to cast out evil spirits. And he said, and I'll quote this particular text, it says, wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or to listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned these people to their fate. And so the disciples went out to um, to teach everyone that they met to repent of their sins and turn to God and they, they heal lots of people. So <clears throat> here is yet another uh, time when Jesus is sending his disciples out again and he's giving them more instructions of how to work in a certain area and what to do when they reject him or reject uh, their message. So I don't know if there's a lot of uh, detail to be discussing here except to say that that uh, that he sent them out two by two so that they could encourage each other. Yeah, it's a it's a very very good um, source to put together a sort of paradigm of, of of training of ministerial training because we're living in this in this world where people think of ministerial training as going someplace and doing a master. I mean. I got my undergrad in biology, then I went to Andrews around when I was about 22, and I did some, some time there, and basically just sat in my desk, listened to lectures from morning till 1, 2 o'clock, then went home and read a bunch of books till, till nighttime, and then it was time to go to bed, and that was my training for about a year that I stayed there. Um, that's a very different model of training compared to the way Jesus works with, with the disciples, because he... He takes them with him, he lives with them, he has them side by side with him as he does the miracles, as he does the teaching, everything he does, he uses them to help him, to, to take care of the crowds, whatever. But then, once they've been with him long enough to get a sense for what, what he teaches and what's going on, they have some understanding, he actually sends them out to do it on their own. Not by themselves, but in, in pairs. So they have a chance to really test things out for themselves because there's something there's something to being out there and having to interact with people on your own and having to deal with people's objections and, and, and having the responsibility of, of the work on your own shoulders as opposed to always knowing that there's somebody else to, to fall back on if needed. And, and, and Jesus actually continues through several cycles of these where he starts off uh, with them together, then two by two, then sends them off for longer periods of time and so on, all the way up till, till the end when he leaves and they're on their own and they take over the church. Yeah, it's really, it's really a lost art uh, these days because there's so much to learn 
in the, the period that you have when you're in training that it's almost impossible for you to uh, have the practical training. And yeah. one of the things, I think we've discussed this in, in other episodes, but one of the things that the church used to have was that you started out in the ministry after you got your bachelor's in theology and you worked for like five to seven years and then you went to the seminary for advanced training and you got your master's and that used to be the terminal training and you were pretty much done. And even before that, they used to have where you were finished with your high school and then you went and worked as, a, as an associate pastor or a pastor, apprentice pastor for a while, evangelist, and then you were given an area to service and then you went and got your bachelor's in theology. So that was like really, really old, yeah. right? <clears throat> but in our day, there's so much to learn that the head knowledge takes over, uh, takes precedence over the practical knowledge. Yeah. And from our point of view, even the stuff that is learned. So even, even in a situation where people spend two years with their heads in the books 24-7, and it's still not enough because... Like from from our perspective, when we look at look at the level of education of the average pastor, we, we feel it's nowhere near what is needed to tackle the issues that we're we're dealing with in today's exactly yeah. exactly. So, <clears throat> in in the interest of like discussing pastoral education for a second, let's let's divide pastoral education into three areas. So I will say that there is general knowledge or general education training. Yeah. Usually that is covered in a bachelor's degree, but I would like to propose that pastors get education in language, meaning that they, they know how to read and write and express themselves really well, uh, in history, so they understand the historical movements of nations and peoples, and then in science, so they understand the scientific method really, really well, in statistics, and a little bit of mathematics, like at least college algebra, if not calculus, at least yeah. college algebra, and... Uh, Intro to statistics and probability, so they understand how to interpret data, right? And then finally, some practical stuff like uh, whether it is um, learning how to fix your car or learning how to use computers, maybe a little bit of programming, whatever, just to round you out as an individual. And of course, you could do some philosophical classes, you can do some uh, some accounting classes or personal finance or whatever, just to give you a rounded experience of what it is to be a human being, right? And how human beings act and react. Because one of the things I've noticed is that too many people that graduate from the seminary are utterly useless when it comes to society, when it comes to living in society. They don't know how to, they don't know how to live, they don't know how to act or react to anybody in society. And so as a result, um, they're really powerless to like help members make sense of the workplace and make sense of the things that they are experiencing because what they come with is what they think is the most important stuff which the, the the theologians and the professors at the seminary are wrestling with but it has nothing has no bearing in the life of the member yeah right and so you have two options one is you could junk all that and you could just be like that was just useless knowledge or it was useful then but it's not useful now or you could say how can I take that knowledge and make it practical for the members? But a lot of times, to make it practical for the members, you had, have had to have had uh, a practical life or a practical experience where you had a job, you worked at regular hours, you associated with people in the workplace, and you realized like, the, the pressures people exist under, right? But most pastors don't have any of that stuff. They just go straight from high school 
into college and then college is pre-seminary and they go right into the seminary and they come to the field and they are clueless. Now, I think general education, we talked about science and some of the stuff there. And then theological education, I think, needs to be overhauled. The, the Master's in Divinity program needs to be completely reworked uh, and built on a different basis. And that basis needs to be on scripture, sola scriptura, but it needs to be based on the Adventist method. A lot of the, the ministerial practices that we borrow from other denominations work for them, but they do not work for our theology and the way our theology develops. Yeah. So for that reason, I think we need a whole reworking of our system. The, the second thing is I think intellectually, the masters in theology programs, I'm just taking Andrews for an example, but the masters in theology programs are probably better uh, for the MDiv than the MDiv programs for the MDiv. So that's one thing. The last thing I will say, <clears throat> so that's theological education. Now, the last thing I will say is the, the practical, uh, the practical ministerial experience training that you get two weeks or whatever that you go follow some pastor in, in some local church yeah. around the university is inadequate. What you really need is a, a real solid ministerial experience where you're out in the field working with the pastor in an apprentice model where you are observing the pastor day in and day out like like you described Jesus teaching and it's in various contexts so maybe there's a context of the hospital so you're with a hospital chaplain for a while and then there's the context of working with a local pastor there's a context of working with an administrator there's different areas and different ways that you can work where you can get a whole feel of of what it is to be a pastor and then you're, I think you would be it would be adequate and you'd be able to to work in the field. Yeah, yeah there's a lot to do there because um, every pastor has to have the experience of sitting down with an individual and bringing them to Christ all the way through, like basically taking a person who's out there completely unattached, un, un, uh, unaware of anything spiritual and just walking them step by step to the point where they make a decision for Christ and then follow through to baptism and so on. Soul winning. Soul winning, yeah. And and really, to have that experience, you probably need to work with about 50 individuals enough to get two or three that, that follow the process all the way through. Because you need a point of reference. Because otherwise, you think it's normal for all the other people that, that didn't come all the way through. You think it's normal for that, for that behavior. But those people, for whatever reason, came for the, for the wrong motives or whatever, and they didn't follow through. But you need to have this point of reference so you know what is the natural reaction of a person that comes in contact with the gospel and how they're supposed to respond and, and how they, they make their decisions. And then you could apply that as you continue on in your ministry. And uh, you're not going to get that opportunity in being in school or just coming to, to church because, you know, they assign churches. Like, for example, here last year I had to work with a church for a few months. What I do, I mean, I came on Sabbath and I preach once a month. And then when I wasn't preaching, I was just helping out with different things. And that was it. So there wasn't like a direct one-on-one. -on -one, um, exactly. But you had had that experience. Yeah, I had that experience uh, from my before. own years before. Yeah. But uh, that's something you, you need to bring the young people through as they're training for ministry. That, And it's something that most of the times they don't have an opportunity to get. Now, here's a can of worms that I'm going to open that we may not be able to shut. But... Uh, I'm going to say that I believe, I believe very strongly in the U.S. military's method for selection of people. So 
when you join the army, they'll take almost everybody. Uh, but when you join the special forces, there's a selection process. So they put you through this uh, physical process where they test you out to see whether you're going to quit. And they bring you right to the edge of your mental capacity for pain and for tiredness and, and everything. And then they see how you react. And lots of people quit. There's uh, different documentaries on YouTube on the selection process for the British SAS or the, the Green Berets or any, uh, you know, the Rangers or any other military uh, force. Like, for example, the, the Air Force has this swimming pool. So they make people swim back and forth and then go out for a run and then come back and swim again. You know, and you keep swimming and swimming and swimming till you finally get so tired that you can't, you know, people are so afraid of jumping back into the water because they're, they're afraid they're going to drown. And they bring you to that point and they want to see whether you're going to follow orders, right? In the same way, maybe not as extreme, but in the same way, I think that there needs to be a better selection process of ministers, not to the point where you fail at everything in life and now you decide to go to the ministry and then the ministry takes you. And then lo and behold, three years later, you get a shiny diploma and you're ready to be a pastor to guide a whole congregation. Like, I just think that people who have failed in life otherwise, uh, that the ministry shouldn't be the last place where they show up and, and find their, their footing. Because a lot of times we've got way too many people who really, really are not made for ministry either. They just need to do something else. They need to find something else. And they're in ministry and then they perpetuate their same problems in the churches as well. So anyway, um, I think this is a good place for us to stop and we'll stop here. But just to, to, to recap, we talked about Jesus not being able to do miracles in an area because they didn't have the faith, and then Jesus sending people out two by two, and the implications of uh, that ministry model.